0: Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, and we will finish the chapter this evening, Revelation chapter 1. Remember where we left off last week, we have John on the island of Patmos. He is there because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's now in a visionary trance, as it speaks there in verse 10, of being now in the Spirit on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And we have then in, in verse 10 behind John a very loud voice that is the sound of like trumpets. And John now is going to turn and look and see who is speaking to him. What we need to do as we go through this section, this is one of many sections where we need to visualize the image that is being described. This is a really important section that the intention of many of these paragraphs that we'll go through in Revelation has the point of trying to conjure an image in our mind. And so whatever you need to do to begin to visualize what we read, I encourage you to do that. I want you to to see these images as it is being described so that you can feel not only the weight of what the, the author is intending, but that you can also then determine what is the meaning of the symbol. Uh, It's important to paint that picture within your mind and get a feel of what John is experiencing, what he is witnessing, and therefore then be able to grasp what, what we're supposed to take away about this image that we see of our Lord Jesus. So verse 12, and try to picture this as we go along, and then we'll break down the various images that are described for us. Revelation 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living One. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in My right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is quite a scene that unfolds as John hears the sound of the voice of trumpets behind him. He turns to look and sees something that is certainly not ordinary in the slightest. The first setup for us is that he sees seven lampstands set up, supposedly we would imagine, in a circle of sorts, since we read that this one like the Son of Man is standing in the midst of this of these lampstands. And the lampstands in verse twenty we are told represent the seven churches, these seven churches that were named in verse eleven from Ephesus all the way to the very end of Laodicea. Here are the seven churches, and these lampstands then, as John turns and looks, all have a specific designation as they represent each of these churches that are receiving this letter. We then read also in verse 13 that we have one like the Son of Man. In our studies already in Revelation, we have observed this phrase, the one like the Son of Man, is a Messianic reference. It reaches back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we see one like the Son of Man coming to the ancients of days, receiving eternal power and dominion and rule. It is picturing Christ. And so here we are in verse 13 with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. He's standing with these seven churches surrounding Him. The clothing that is described here is quite fascinating. We have in verse 13, we have this being clothed with a robe that goes all the way down to the feet. We also have him clothed, clothed with a golden sash uh, around his his body. Uh, a lot of writers have tried to determine now what is the intention of that symbolism, and as this will not be a surprise to you, and you will hear me repeat this quite a bit in our study, there's a lot of disagreement about this image. We're going to say that a lot in Revelation. The best thing that we can do is determine well how were these symbols used in the the Old Testament and then we'll bring that message forward to understand what this is supposed to symbolize for us. I think we have to notice that it is interesting in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, you will read of similar image here. You will read of a, a similar picture of this one and even there in verse 14 of Revelation 1, the hairs of the head were white, the Ancient of Days is pictured the same way in in Daniel chapter 7 but it's not only a description that's used of the son of man in Daniel and as well as in Ezekiel it's also used of angels Uh, you'll see a couple of figures uh, that are used in Daniel like in Daniel 10 verses 5 and 6 as well as Ezekiel 9 verse 2, where these are angels who are dressed in a similar garb. And then many often note that this is somewhat similar to the high priest and what they wore as commanded under the old covenant. And so that's what the debate usually goes around is, well, should we take it to, is this supposed to be a priestly picture? Or is it supposed to be a kingly picture? Or is it supposed to be a divine picture? And I would submit to you that we aren't supposed to necessarily pick one, that this is a symbol of authority. This is somebody who is very important. He doesn't turn and look and say, well, there's just kind of this guy and he's plainly dressed and he looked a lot like me. No, this is somebody very important. He carries authority. He is a dignitary. He is somebody who carries weight. His clothing does not demand him to be divine. His clothing demands that he has authority possessed within him. And that's what I think is the intention. Why we see angels dressed this way. Not that angels are divine, but that they carry authority. Not that high priests are divine, but that they carry authority. And so here is the Son of Man and He is in the midst of the lampstands. Well, what is the picture? First picture before us. This figure carries some weight and authority and might and power. And thus there He is as He's presented before uh, these seven churches. And I think the, the first picture that we would then grasp is that you are telling these first century Christians and these seven churches that essentially that that Christ is not absent. He's right there in your midst. And not only is He not absent, and not only is He there in your midst, but He's in your midst with authority. He's in your midst with power. And one of the things that Revelation will unveil is the activity and the might of Christ. Christ is going to be active. Christ is going to be doing something. And here is that beginning to say... Christ is in charge. He has the authority. He's not absent. He's not gone. Imagine our backdrop that we have. We know we have Christians who are suffering. We know that it is difficult times. They've been suffering from Jewish persecutors. Very shortly they're going to be suffering from Roman persecutors. We've observed in our studies that in the churches in Asia, this is the center of the imperial cult worship where people were worshiping the emperor as the one who is king and was requiring people to do the same and would suffer if they did not do so a reminder Christ is not absent Christ is with his Christians he is with his people and he's with them with all authority and that's the first takeaway to get of what John saw as you would turn and see Jesus now surrounded by his churches he's there he's active and he has power The second point of the imagery there, verses 14 and 15 is where we will zero in, is also a a parallel to Daniel chapter 7 as well as to Daniel 10. This is going to be a common refrain as we go through Revelation, is how often Revelation reaches for an image out of the book of Daniel. Well, We'll find some of the images being in other of the prophetic books but Daniel is very heavy. A lot of weight is given to Daniel. When we get to chapter 4 and 5, I'll show you why that's the case, but we're going to know just warming up to that right now and observing that many of the images that we read in Revelation are there in Daniel and we've already begun that. Here in verses 14 and 15, these images are also found in the book of Daniel. The white hair. Now, for us and For many writers, white hair means wisdom, and so they want to to plug that in right here. However, in in Daniel 7, that's not the meaning. When we read of the Ancient of Days having white hair as the Son of Man comes to Him, the point isn't to say, well, God's all wise. No. The point is the eternal nature of God. He's always there. He's a constant. And that's the picture that is being given here about Christ. It's not his wisdom, but his eternal nature. He's always there, he's a constant as he stands in the midst of the seven churches. His eyes are a flame of fire. I hope that we have accomplished enough apocalyptic and prophetic study to know when you read a fire in the prophets, what is that speaking about but judgment? It's always a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol that we even read about in the New Testament when John the Baptist said... That there be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, blessing Holy Spirit, fire judgment. Same thing is being used here. It is not just simply no. There is the mighty Christ with all power, and He is our cosmic teddy bear. No, look in His eyes and see the flame of fire that is depicted there. It is a picturing of Christ as ready to act, ready to judge. Not only does he have authority, but he's going to do something here shortly. His eyes are flame of fire as he's about to judge. And that's how the next picture goes right along with it. What is the picture of his feet? Burnished bronze that have just come out of the fire as coming out of a furnace. One of the things that we'll read a couple of times, not only in the Old Testament, but as well here in the book of Revelation is that you trample over the enemies. That's a very common picture. If you're going to be victorious over your enemies, the picture is that you trample trample them down. His feet are of burnished bronze as refined by fire. They are ready to trample the enemies, to ground them into ashes, as His feet are burning with fire and they are hot. And whoever, whatever the feet touch... They are going to be burned. They are going to be judged. And so it is a combined picture of here is the eternal Christ. His eyes are of flames of fire. He is ready to judge. In fact, His feet are about to move forward so that He can carry out these judgments. Also then, verse 15, "...and His voice was like the roar of many waters." That symbolism pretty much stands unto itself. If you've ever been somewhere where there's a mighty waterfall or a roar of the waters, you know that that's a very intimidating, powerful image. When you're trying to shout to the next person who's standing right there because the sound is just just raging with a powerful noise. Again, notice how it's not that these symbols are like, okay, now this means this and this means this. as if all of these images were disjointed. I want you to see how all of these images are coming together into one simple picture. Christ with authority, ready to judge, but He's in the midst of His churches. He's there. He's not absent. It's a very simple picture. And so the roar of his voice again symbolizes the power that Christ has. Verse 16 is probably where things get extraordinarily challenging. Three interesting images. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. And his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Let's take those in reverse order, because I think that's from easier to more difficult. He begins with the face being like the sun, shining at full strength. You ever tried to stare directly into the sun? Not for long, have you? (laughs) Not for long. In fact, that's what's so fascinating about an eclipse, is that just for a moment, you're actually allowed to get a second or two of a glance but even that we know it's burning our eyeballs out if we stare at that too long while the moon is covering the majority of it. To go outside and to stare directly at the sun, you can't even do that with sunglasses on. The power and the strength and the heat that comes off the sun is overwhelming. Notice again, the same imagery being drawn of Jesus here. The power and the might that John turns to look at this figure and you can't even bear to look at his face because it is just burning like the sun with full strength, the great authority of Christ. Second, in verse 16, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's... That certainly turns the image strange, doesn't it? You go, whoa, now that's a a little bit different. Here's a sword coming out of his mouth. But does that not again continue to maintain the imagery of power? But it's the power of his message, the might of the things that he says that His Word has force and power, pictured like a sword. And this would probably be reaching to a prophecy given by Isaiah about what the Messiah was going to do. In Isaiah 11 and verse 3, Isaiah prophesies about the coming servant Messiah of the Lord and His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Power and authority, not only in who he is, but even within his very words. We can go to places like in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that describes the Word of God as being sharper than any two-edged sword and able to go right to the very joints and marrow of our lives and of our heart. And I think this is just simply the picture of what Christ says has power and force. His words have power and meaning. And so listen to what He has to say. This would be very relevant because what is... Jesus is going to do in chapters 2 and 3 but speak messages to each of the churches about what they must do and so there's power in his words and so visualize that in this scene and then finally in verse 16 we have and in his right hand are seven stars And this is a challenging image because uh, there's a couple of ways to understand it but before we look at the stars let's look at the right hand What does it mean to have these stars in the right hand? Uh, We don't really use that terminology an awful lot, but it is always used as a picture of might and power and strength. Uh, There's a number of passages that refer to God that way. I'll just read you one of them in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. It is your right hand that, for most people, is your dominant hand. It is your strong hand. If it's in your right hand, that's the right hand that acts and has power and might. And so that's the picture here: is in His right hand, here is power. And that's why we see images like being at the right hand of God and seeing the right hand act as this is the place of position of power and might and glory. So, the seven stars are in His right hand. Now thankfully, verse 20 gives us an explanation of that. Did you notice that verse 20 gives us an answer? From time to time, the book of Revelation will say, now this is what I meant by that. And verse 20 does that for us. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And sometimes when you read Revelation, you get an answer like that. You go, okay, that didn't help an awful lot. And that's one of the cases here. And you go, okay, that's yet another symbol of a symbol. The seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Great. Well, what does that mean? There's two options with that. First, we understand that angels, very simple word, how that's translated, it can be used one of two ways, according to the Greek lexicons. One way is that that word can be used as a human messenger, somebody who is offering a message and giving a message. It's used that way in a number of places in the New Testament. It also can certainly be used of angels in the way that we think of angels, that we're talking about a spiritual being. And so the question that before us is well who are these angels is John seeing seven spiritual beings as the representation of these seven churches or is John seeing seven human beings in the right hand of God as messengers for these seven churches you got answer Well, I believe there's a number of reasons not to understand this to refer to the seven spiritual beings as seven angels. And some of it just has to do with simply the symbolism. What would it mean for there to be seven angels in the right hand of Christ? I don't have a good... Symbolism of, okay, now I can go back here and figure out what that means. But that has a, has a certain meaning, well, why are the angels in, the, in Christ's right hand? And what good does that do for me as a Christian in the first century uh, there in these seven churches? What would that tell the Christian? Not a whole lot of anything. And so that's one of the reasons why I don't think we're talking about angels. Number two, why would the angels be instructed to write these letters to the churches? We're going to see that in chapter 2, verse 1, and to we'll go all the way through. To the angel of the church of, fill in the blank, Ephesus, write. Why would the angels be writing these letters to the churches? If you remember chapter 1, we saw a definitive line that the Father gave this revelation to Christ and Christ gave it to the angels, and the angels signified it and gave it to his servant John, it doesn't make a lot of sense then for John to give it back to the angel and then have him do something with it. Uh, I don't see that as the process of what's going on. So why would the angels be instructed to write? And number three, there's not anywhere in the Scriptures that give us any picture whatsoever that every local church has an angel watching over it. Where would we go to say, now that's the theology that we need from the Bible, that every local church that exists has its own personal spiritual being watching over the things that happen? You may think that's the case, but we would just have to assume that only based upon the words here, and we don't see that language anywhere else. Instead, I want you to consider how human messengers as the seven stars has a logical understanding. First of all, we read in the New Testament that there are humans that act as representations or representatives, I should say, of a local congregation like Epaphroditus you'll read about in Philippians 2 and in Philippians 4 he's pictured as representing the church he appears to be a servant of that church and he then stands for them as Paul writes about what what Epaphroditus is doing and is a representation then or representative of that congregation Epaphras is spoken of the same way in Colossians 4 in verse 12 is that well there's somebody who is a worker or a preacher or teacher of that congregation, he somewhat stands then as a representative for that church. We even kind of do that in our own minds today talking about a given local church and who's the preacher there. Well, they kind of stand as a representative of that congregation. The elders in a similar way are representatives of the whole of the congregation. Furthermore, it would make a lot of sense. For the instructions that we're about to read would be that the messengers, each of these messengers, would come from one of these local churches in Asia Minor, go to John on Patmos and write down the things that are being told to them and take it back to their church. Uh, to me, that makes an awful lot of sense that here is John in exile on this island of Patmos and these Christians, a Christian from each of the seven churches, goes to John. John receives the vision. Each of them writes down this message and takes it back to their congregation. That seems to me the most logical of what's being told to us when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Right? I want this messenger to write down this message to that church. Here's what I have against the church of Ephesus, says the Lord. To me, that works much better. And so what this would do for a symbolism then would suggest Christ's protection. We have Christ in the midst of these seven lampstands. An imagery that He is there, that He's not absent, as we've already mentioned. And now you place in the imagery, and in His right hand are the seven stars. In His right hand are these fellows who represent the people of God that this letter is being written to. And it is a picture of strength. It is a picture of comfort that Christ knows what you are enduring. Christ knows what's happening there in those churches. And He has you in His hand. And so there's a picture of comfort that He's there in your midst He has you in the hand, a picture of security, a picture of encouragement. That makes much more sense in my mind than for seven angels to be in his hand. And what would that tell the Christians? Uh, I don't know what that would tell them. But to say you are in his hand is a very comforting picture in the midst of some difficult times that are before them. That leads to verses 17-20. through 20. And those final verses are somewhat fascinating. What do you suppose John's going to do in seeing this amazing image as he turns and he looks and he sees one like the Son of Man dressed in a robe down to his feet, a golden sash across his body, his hair is white like wool. His eyes are flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, as gone through the fire. Here is this powerful image. He has seven stars in His right hand. He has a sword coming out of His mouth. What are you going to do with that moment? Oh, hi, how you doing? Boy, that's really neat. No, no, no. Verse 17 tells us that John falls down as if he were dead. The power of the vision is so strong that he falls down on his face as though he were dead. This is a common picture that we see in the Scriptures because we are not witnessing anybody coming before the actual throne of God itself we're actually seeing people who are only seeing the the likeness of the glory of God or coming in a visionary state to the throne of God. And even at that, the reaction is the same. Ezekiel, he is in a vision. And over and over again, one of the funny things that I love about Ezekiel, he falls down on his face and when he sees something, and it says that the Spirit picks him up and sets him on his feet. <laughs> that would be one weird... Vision going on there. Every time he sees him, he falls down. The Spirit picks him back up, sets him back on his feet. Common imagery throughout Ezekiel with the imagery of of the Lord. You fall down on your face. Daniel, he falls down on his face. And that's even when angels like Gabriel come to him. The power of that, he falls down on his face. What was Isaiah's reaction in his vision in Isaiah 6 as he comes before the throne room of God? Woe is me, because I am ruined. Anybody who sees in vision the likeness of the glory of God is crushed by the weight of the image and immediately falls down to their feet in concern, in woe, in devastation. Here John falls down as if he were dead. A powerful picture. And that's again carrying what we've seen from verse 12. We are supposed to see Christ with power and might and authority. And even his servant John falls on his face at the very sight of who he is. Notice also in verse 17, I think one of the neat little asides there in verse 17, but he lays his right hand on me. a comforting picture. Great comforting pictures are intended here, and that's what we said with the seven stars on the right hand. Now, here's Christ laying his hand on John. It's all right. And that's what you have here in his very words. Verse 17 Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. You see the emphasis of his eternal nature. I am the first and the last. And to call Himself the Living One is something that God the Father had placed upon Himself. He is the Living God. In fact, remember Caiaphas in his charge to Jesus, I adjure you by the Son of the Living God. Are you Him? Jesus says yes. This is a picture of God. And one of the things that's fascinating about chapter 1 is how often Jesus is connecting his own character and being to the deity and the power and the authority of God Himself. One of the things that we've observed in our studies, we've seen that Alpha, like verse 8, I'm the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come. Well, the who is, who was, and is to come is the description of the Father And yet Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. It is a a, a combining of saying Christ has that very authority. He is God. He is deity. And His eternal nature then is emphasized. Verse 18, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is probably... Uh, something that's a little bit more foreign to us, but was extremely uh, part of the common knowledge and culture of, of the Greeks and that Hades was the realm of the departed spirits. And that's why death and Hades are usually spoken up together. Death is, of course, the act of, of dying and passing on to this life, and Hades is where your soul goes. It is the abode or the realm of the departed soul. And so the picture is this. Have you got it yet? Authority. Christ has authority over that too Christ has authority over death Christ has authority over the realm of the departed souls to have the keys to something means you have authority over it we have that today who's got the keys to your car who has the keys to your house the one who's in charge of the car and the one who's in charge of the house And that's what you have in Matthew 16 and verse 18 when you have the keys of the kingdom being given to Peter and the apostles. What's being stated? Authority is being handed over. The same thing here is being described. Christ has authority. He is the one who has died and now is raised and therefore He has authority over death. He has authority over the realm of the departed souls. And so what a comfort this will be To the Christians who He's going to prophesy about and tell them that you're about to suffer, you are about to die, you are going to be persecuted, but take comfort and don't worry. If that is your end result, Christ has authority over that. If you die for the cause of Christ, there's nothing to worry about. If you die as one of His children, there's no concern in the slightest. Because Christ has power over death. He has power over Hades. Christ died and raised from the dead. And the promise is when you die, not if, but when you die, Christ will raise you too. And you will be seated with Him. Christ has the authority. Christ has the power. Do not fear the things you are about to suffer. Do not be concerned if you die for the cause of Christ. Oh, first century Christian because Christ will raise you from the dead. He has authority even over death. And so that is the, the power of the picture that is trying to be described for us about who Jesus is. And now Jesus concludes with the final statement in verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And final instructions, John, here's what you're going to do. Everything that you see, I want you to write down. Now I believe it's about chapter 10 he's going to see something and God's going to say, don't write that down. It's one of the small things. But everything else that John sees, it's very strange. You've got the seven thunders that happen and he says, don't write that down. Okay, don't write that down. But everything you see, John, everything else that you see going on in these visions, I want you to write those things down. That's the instructions to him. And there are two things that are described that he's going to be writing down for us. Verse 19 is a very important key to the book. One, you're going to write down those things that are... You're going to be writing down the things that are currently happening. There are going to be things that are already taking place within that time that this writing is going on. There are events that are transpiring that John is going to write down and describe that are taking place. And then I want you to write down the things that will take place after this. Once you've written down the things that are, there's going to be things that are going to happen after that is accomplished. And so some of your writings and some of the things that you see are going to be about those things as well. Two very important pictures about what the book of Revelation contains. There are things that currently are going on, but there are things that have not yet happened yet that are going to happen after this. And so two really important keys. And that's what's going to set up the book for us. And it's going to reveal the various things that are going to unfold for us. And so as we go through Revelation, that's what we're looking for. What are the things that are? What are the things that will take place after this? This also makes sense as to why we did all of that work in our very first study about Revelation 1 verse 1 and Revelation 1 verse 3, talking about that the time is soon, that these things must shortly take place. The time is near that the things that John has seen are things that are. The time is near. It's right here at hand. Things are already beginning to take place. And then could also still say, but there are things that will happen afterward. That this is the beginning note, the start of the things that are going to be accomplished. After those things begin, then the things after that must happen next. And as we go through Revelation, we'll see the the flow of those two events. I assume we've got verse 20 down at this point, but I'll I'll walk through it really quickly since we've pretty well done the interpretation. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. They're the seven messengers that have come to John to receive the message. They're going to be instructed to write these things down and take them back to their congregation that they are a part of. And the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So, a picture of Christ in the midst. He is with them. He is not absent. A picture of power and comfort. And they are in His hand. And He is with them. And so do not be afraid, though you suffer death, though you suffer persecution. You are in My hand. I have the keys to death and Hades. You will be okay. And that's the picture that I think we walk away from from the book. For us, then, I think there are three things that we can take away as messages for ourselves. And this is going to be one of the challenges that I am placing upon myself as we go through Revelation is to find now since all of this is about things that for most of which were back then what does this do for us what are we supposed to take away from these powerful messages why did God preserve this book so that it would last for all Christians of all time what are we supposed to see in the book one I think we should see Jesus in the midst of the churches I think that is a really beautiful picture of what is described for us by the Apostle Paul when he said if, if God is for us Who can be against us? This is the visualization of that. Christ is with His people. He's in the midst of His churches. He is with us. He is not absent. He sees what's happening. It's probably one of the big things we take away from chapter 2 and 3. Jesus knows what's happening. He sees what's going on in the churches. These are His. He owns them. And so He is with us. He is in the midst. And so He is for us who can be against us. Number two, it's probably good for us to take a step back every once in a while and see Jesus like this. Don't always see Jesus like in the Gospels. Take a step back and see Jesus like this. With power, with authority, with might with judgment in His eyes, a reminder of who He is and where we stand before Him. It is a picture that should cause us to have awe and respect. It should cause us to be humbled, to see who we serve, to see Jesus as Lord with all of that might, with all of that rule, with all of that power to be able every once in a while in our lives to get down on our hands and knees and fall on our faces before the true and living God and recognize He is the one in charge and I am nothing before His sight. And I should fall down as dead before Him because He is the Almighty God. And what a great picture we see here of who He is and the might that He carries. And where that puts me is very low on the totem pole and humbles me that I get to serve such a great and almighty God. Number three, see Jesus as the one who has authority over death. That's probably, I think, one of the greatest fears that we have, although quite humorously, apparently... The number one fear that most people have is speaking in front of people. And number two is death. But be that as it may, death is one of the big things that we fear in life. The uncertainty of it. Wanting to go out on our own terms. And particularly to the first century Christian, he's going to prophesy that Christians are being slaughtered for the cause of Christ. He's going to picture the saints of God under the altar who've been martyred, crying out how long... It's a picture of doom and devastation, not only of what the Jews had done in persecution, but the persecution of the Roman Empire that was going to begin and the destruction of the Christians to tell them, Jesus has power over death. If we die with Christ, we will be raised with Him, and we have nothing to fear. As Jesus Himself said, do not fear the one who can kill the body. Be fear the one who can kill body and soul. He is the one that we must then have our allegiance and we do not fear what may happen to us here on this earth because when we are with Jesus, we will be raised. Pull your psalm books out.